0: my soul cries out with a joyful shout that the god of my heart is great and my spirit sings of the wondrous things that you bring to the one who waits you fixed your sight on your servant's plight and my weakness you did not spurn so from east to west shall my name be blessed go the world be about to turn though i am small my god my all you work great things in me and your mercy will last from the depths of the past to the age that will to be your very name puts the proud to shame and for those who would for you yearn you will show your might put the strong to flight for the world is about to turn My heart shall sing of the day you bring, Let the fires of your justice burn. Wipe away all tears, for the dawn draws near, And the world is about to turn. From the halls of power to the fortress tower, Not a stone will be left on stone. Let the king beware, for your justice Tears every tyrant from his throne. The hungry poor shall weep no more for the food they can never earn. There are tables spread, every mouth be fed, for the world is about to turn. Though the nations rage from age to age, we remember who holds us fast. God's mercy must deliver us from the conqueror's crushing grasp. This saving word that our forebears heard is a promise that holds us bound, till the spear and rod be crushed by God who is turning the world around. My heart shall sing of the day you bring, let the fires of your justice burn, wipe away all tears for the dawn draws near, and the world is about to turn.
1: Welcome to this uvula audio presentation of Thomas Merton's The Seven-Story Mountain Volume 17 Epilogue Meditatio Poperas in Solitudine Day into day uttereth speech The clouds change The seasons pass over our woods and fields In their slow, regular procession And time is gone before you're aware of it Christ pours down the Holy Ghost upon you from heaven in the fire of June. And then you look about and realize that you're standing in the barnyard husking corn and the cold wind of the last days of October is sweeping across the thin woods and biting you to the bone. And then in a minute or so, it's Christmas and Christ is born. At the last of the three great Masses, Celebrated as a solemn, pontifical high mass with pontifical tears, I am one of the minor ministers. We have vested in the sacristy, have waited in the sanctuary. In the thunder of the organ music, Reverend Father has come with the monks in procession through the cloister and has knelt a moment before the Blessed Sacrament in the chapel of Our Lady of Victories. Then tears begins. After that the solemn vesting and I present the crozier with suitable bows, and they go to the foot of the altar, and the tremendous introit begins in the choir, summing up with the splendour of its meaning the whole of Christmas. The child born on earth in lowliness in the crib before the shepherds, is born this day in heaven in glory, in magnificence, in majesty, and the day in which he is born is eternity. He is born forever, all power, all wisdom, begotten before the day star. He is the beginning and the end, everlasting born of the Father, the infinite God. And he himself is the same God, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, God born of himself forever, himself his own second person, yet born of himself forever. He, it is also, that is born each instant in our hearts for this unending birth, this everlasting beginning without end, this everlasting perfect newness of God, begotten of himself, issuing from himself, without leaving himself or altering his oneness. This is the life that is left in us. But see, he is suddenly born again, also on this altar, Upon that cloth and corporal as white as snow beneath the burning lights, and raised up above us in the hush of the consecration. Christ, the child of God, the Son made flesh with his all power. What will you say to me this Christmas, O Jesus? What is it that you have prepared for me at your Nativity? At the Agnus Dei, I put aside the crozier, and we all go to the epistle side, together to receive the kiss of peace. We bow to one another. The salutation passes from one to the other. Heads bowed, hands are folded again. Now we all turn around. And suddenly I find myself looking straight into the face of Bob Lacks. He's standing at the benches that are drawn up there for visitors. He is so close to the steps of the sanctuary that if he were any closer he would be in it. And I say to myself, Good, now he'll finally get baptized too. After dinner I went to Reverend Father's room and told him who Lax was, and that he was an old friend of mine, and asked if I might speak to him. We are ordinarily only allowed to receive visits from our own families, but since I had practically nothing left of my family, Reverend Father agreed that I might speak to Lax for a little while, and I mentioned that I thought he might be ready to be baptized. Isn't he Catholic? asked Reverend Father. No, Reverend Father, not yet. Well, in that case, why was he taking communion last night at the Midnight Mass? Up in the guesthouse, Lax told me how the baptism had come about. He had been at the University of North Carolina teaching some earnest young men how to write radio plays. Toward the end of Advent, he had got a letter from Rice which said, in so many words, Come to New York, and we will find a priest and ask him to baptize you. All of a sudden, after all those years of debating back and forth, Lacks just got on a train and went to New York. Nobody had ever put the matter up to him like that before. They found a Jesuit in that big church up on Park Avenue, and he baptized him, and that was it. So then Lacks had said, Now I'll go to the Trappist in Kentucky and visit Merton. Bob Gibney had told him, You were a Jew and now you're a Catholic? Why don't you black your face? Then you'll be all three things that the Southerners hate most. Night had already fallen, Christmas Eve, when Lax got to Barnstown. He stood by the road to hitch a ride to the monastery. Some fellows picked him up and, while they were driving along, they began talking about the Jews the way some people talk about the Jews. So Lax had said he was not only a Catholic but a converted Jew. Oh! said the fellows in the car. Of course you understand, we were talking about Orthodox Jews. From Lax, I heard the first scraps of information about all the friends I'd forgotten, about Bob Gertie who was in England in the Army after having been baptized into the church in September. Rice was working on one of those picture magazines. Gibney had gotten married, and soon he and Lax would also be working with a, another picture magazine a new one that had started since I came to the monastery called Parade or Fanfare or something like that. I don't know if Peggy Wells had already gone to Hollywood, but she went soon and is still there. Nancy Flagg was working either on Vogue or Harper's Bazaar. Somehow, too, I have the impression that all the people who had lived in the cottage at Olean that summer that I did not enter the Franciscans had at one point got themselves jobs on the magazine House and Garden. The whole thing is very obscure and mysterious. Perhaps it's something I dreamed. But for those three or four months, or however long it was, House and Garden must have been quite a magazine. Surely nothing like the old House and Garden I used to yawn over in the doctor's office. And Seymour was in India. He was in the army. He had not yet, as far as I knew, found any practical application for his jiu-jitsu. In India, his chief task was to edit a paper for the boys in the army. So one day he walked into the printing press where all the typesetters working for him were Hindus, nice peaceful fellows. And Seymour, in the middle of the printing press and in full view of all his native staff, swatted a fly with a report that rang through the shop like a cannon. Instantly all the Hindus stopped working and filed out in strike. I suppose that was the time Seymour had leisure enough to travel to Calcutta and pay a visit to Brahmachuri. When Lax went back to New York, he took with him a manuscript of some poems. Half of them had been written since I entered the novitiate. The other half went back mostly to the days at St. Bonaventure. It was the first time I had looked at them since I had come to Gethsemane. Getting these poems together and making a selection was like editing the work of a stranger, a dead poet, someone who had been forgotten. Lax took this collection to Mark Van Doren, and Mark sent it to James Laughlin at New Directions, and just before Lent, I heard he was going to print it. The exceedingly tidy little volume, Thirty Poems, reached me at the end of November, just before we began the annual retreat in 1944. I went out under the gray sky under the cedars at the edge of the cemetery and stood in the wind that threatened snow and held the printed poems in my hand. Part 2 By this time I should have been delivered of any problems about my true identity. i had already made my simple profession, and my vows should have divested me of my last shreds of any special identity. But then there was this shadow, this double, this rider who had followed me into the cloister. He is still on my track. He rides my shoulders, sometimes like the old man of the sea. I cannot lose him. He still wears the name of Thomas Merton. Is it the name of an enemy? He's supposed to be dead. But he stands and meets me in the doorway of all my prayers and follows me into the church. He kneels with me behind the pillar, the Judas, and talks to me all the time in my ear. He is a businessman. He's full of ideas. He breathes notions and new schemes. He generates books in the silence that ought to be sweet with the infinitely productive darkness of contemplation. And worst of it is, he has my superiors on his side. They won't kick him out. I can't get rid of him. Maybe in the end he will kill me. He will drink my blood. Nobody seems to understand that one of us has got to die. Sometimes I am mortally afraid. There are days when there seems to be nothing left of my vocation contemplate like a of vocation but a few ashes and everyone calmly tells me writing is your vocation and there he stands and bars my way to liberty I am bound to the earth in his Egyptian bondage of contracts reviews page proofs and all the plans for books and articles that I am saddled with when I first began to get ideas about writing I told them to father master and father Abbott with what I thought was simplicity I thought I was just being open to my superiors, in a way I suppose I was. But it was not long before they got the idea that I ought to be put to work translating things, writing things. It's strange. The Trappists have sometimes been definite, even exaggerated, in their opposition to intellectual work in the past. That was one of the big battle cries of Durant. He had a kind of detestation for monkish dilettantes, and he took up arms against the whole Benedictine congregation of saint Moir, in a more or less quixotic battle that ended in a reconciliation scene between De Rencais and the great Dom Mobilion that reads like Oliver Goldsmith. In the 18th and 19th centuries, it was considered a kind of monastic sin for a Trappist to read anything but scripture and the lives of the saints. And I mean those lives that are a chain of fantastic miracles interspersed With pious platitudes. It was considered a matter worthy of suspicion if a monk developed too lively an interest in the fathers of the church. But at Gethsemane, I had walked into a far different kind of situation. In the first place, I entered a house that was seething with an energy and a growth that it had not known for ninety years. After nearly a century of struggle and obscurity, Gethsemane was suddenly turning into a very prominent and vital force in the Cistercian Order and the Catholic Church in America. The house was crowded with postulants and novices. There was no longer any room to hold them all. In fact, on the Feast of St. Joseph, 1944, when I made my simple profession, Father Abbott read out the names of those who had been chosen for the first daughter house of Gethsemane. Two days later, on the Feast of St. Benedict, the colony left for Georgia and took up its abode in a barn 30 miles from Atlanta, chanting the Psalms in a hayloft. By the time this is printed, there will have been another Cistercian monastery in Utah and another in New Mexico and still another planned for the Deep South. This material growth at Gethsemane is part of a vaster movement of spiritual vitality that is working throughout the whole order all over the world. And one of the things it has produced has been a certain amount of Cistercian literature. That should be six Cistercian monasteries in the United States, and a convent of nuns soon to come, that there should also be new foundations in Ireland and Scotland. All this means is a demand for books in English about the Cistercian life and the spirituality of the order and its history. Besides that, Gethsemane has grown into a sort of furnace of apostolic fire. Every weekend during the summer, the guest house is crowded with retreatants, who pray and fight the flies and wipe the sweat out of their eyes and listen to the monks chant in the office and hear sermons in the library and eat the cheese that Brother Kevin makes down in the moist shadows of the cellar that is propitious for that kind of thing. And along with this retreat movement, Gethsemane has been publishing a lot of pamphlets. There is a whole rack of them in the lobby of the guesthouse, blue and yellow and pink and green and gray, with fancy printing on the covers or plain printing, some of them even with pictures. The pamphlets bear the legend A Trappist says, A Trappist declares, A Trappist implores, A Trappist asserts. And what does a Trappist say, declare, implore, assert? He says things like this It is time you changed your way of looking at things. Why don't you get busy and go to confession? After death, what? And things like that. These Trappists, they have something to tell laymen and laywomen, married men and single men, old men and young men, men in the army and men who have just come out of the army, and men who are too crippled up to get into the army. They have a word of advice for nuns and more than a word for priests. They have something to say about how to build a home and how to go about through four years of college without getting too badly knocked about spiritually in the process. One of the pamphlets even has something to say about the contemplative life. So it is not hard to see that this is a situation in which my double, my shadow, my enemy, Thomas Merton, the old man of the sea, has many things in his favor. If he suggests books about the order, his suggestions are heard. If he thinks up poems to be printed and published, his thoughts are listened to. There seems to be no reason why he should not write for magazines. At the beginning of 1944, when I was getting near the time for a simple profession, I wrote a poem to St. Agnes on her feast in January, and when I had finished it, my feeling was that I did not care if I ever wrote another poem as long as I lived. At the end of the year, when 30 poems were printed, I still felt the same way, and more so. So then Lax came down for another Christmas and told me I should be writing more poems. I did not argue about it, but in my own heart I did not think it was God's will. And Dom Vital, my confessor, did not think so either. Then one day, the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul, 1945, I went to Father Abbott for direction, and without my even thinking of the subject, or mentioning it, he suddenly said to me, I want you to go on writing poems. Part 3 It is very quiet. The morning sun is shining over the gatehouse, which is bright with new paint this summer. From here it looks as though the wheat is already beginning to ripen on St. Joseph's Knoll. The monks who are on retreat for their ordination to the diaconate are digging in the guesthouse garden. It is very quiet. I think about this monastery that I am in. I think about the monks, my brothers, my fathers. They're the ones who have a thousand things to do. Some are busy with food, some with clothing, some with fixing the pipes, some with fixing the roof. Some paint the house, some sweep the rooms, some mop the floor of the refectory. One goes to the bees with a mask on and takes away their honey. Three or four others sit in a room with typewriters, and all day long they answer the letters of the people who write here asking for prayers because they are unhappy. Still others are fixing tractors and trucks. Others are driving them. The brothers are fighting with the mules to get them into harness. Or they go out into the pasture after the cows. Or they worry about the rabbits. One of them says he can fix watches. Another is making plans for the new monastery in Utah. The ones who have no special responsibility for chickens or pigs or writing pamphlets or packing them up to send out by mail or keeping the complicated accounts in our mass book, the ones who have nothing special to do can always go out and weed the potatoes and hoe the rows of corn. When the bell rings in the steeple, I will stop typing and close the windows of this room where I work. Traitor Sylvester will put away that mechanical monster of a lawnmower and his helpers will go home with their hoes and shovels. And I will take a book and walk up and down a bit under the trees if there is time before the conventual mass. And most of the others will sit in the scriptorium and write their theological conferences or copy things out of books on the backs of envelopes. And one or two will stand around in a doorway that leads from the little cloister to the monk's garden and twine their rosaries around their fingers and wait for something to happen. After that, we will all go to choir and it will be hot and the organ will be loud and the organist who is just learning will make a lot of mistakes. But on the altar will be offered to God the eternal sacrifice of the Christ to whom we belong and who has brought us here together. Congregavit Nos in Unum Christi Amor. America is discovering the contemplative life. There are paradoxes in the history of Christian spirituality, and not the least of them is the apparent contradiction in the way the fathers and modern popes have looked at the active and contemplative lives. St. Augustine and St. Gregory lamented the sterility of contemplation, which was in itself, as they admitted, superior to action. Yet Pope Pius XI came out in the Constitution *Umbratilum*, with a clear statement that the contemplative life was much more fruitful for the Church, *multo plus ad ecclesia incrementa et humani generis salutam confere*, than the activity of teaching and preaching. What is all the more surprising to a superficial observer is the fact that such a pronouncement should belong to our energetic times. Practically anyone who realizes the existence of the debate can tell you that St. Thomas taught that there should be three vocations, that is, to the active life, to the contemplative, and the third, to the mixture of both, and that this last is superior to the other two. The mixed life is, of course, the vocation of St. Thomas's own order, the friar's preachers. But St. Thomas also comes out flatly with a pronouncement no less uncompromising than the one that we read from Umbra Vita contemplata, he remarks, simpliciter est melior qualm activa. That is, the contemplative life in itself, by its very nature, is superior to the active life. What is more, he proves it by natural reason in arguments from a pagan philosopher, Aristotle. That is how esoteric the question is. Later on, he gives his strongest argument in distinctly Christian terms. The contemplative life directly and immediately occupies itself with the love of God, of which there is no act more perfect or more meritorious. Indeed, that love is the root of all merit. When you consider the effect of individual merit upon the vitality of other members of the mystical body, it is evident there is nothing sterile about contemplation on the contrary st thomas's treatment of it in this question shows that the contemplative life establishes a man in the very heart of all spiritual fecundity when he admits that the active life can be more perfect under certain circumstances accidentally he hedges his statement in with a half dozen qualifications of a strictness that greatly enhances what he has already said about contemplation first activity will only be more perfect than the joy and the rest of contemplation if it is undertaken as the result of an overflow of love for God, propter abundantium divini amoris, in order to fulfill his will. It is not to be continuous, only the answer to a temporary emergency. It is purely for God's glory, and it does not dispense us from contemplation. It is an added obligation, and we must return as soon as we morally kin to the powerful and fruitful silence of recollection that disposes our souls for divine union first comes the act of life practice of virtues mortification charity which prepares us for the contemplation contemplation means rest suspension of activity withdrawal into the mysterious interior solitude in which the soul is absorbed in the immense and fruitful silence of God and learn something of the secret of his perfections, less by seeing than by fruit of love. Yet to stop here would be to fall short of perfection. According to St. Bernard of Clairvaux, it is the comparatively weak soul that arrives at contemplation, but does not overflow with a love that must communicate what it knows of God to other men. For all the great Christian mystics without exception, St. Bernard, St. Gregory, St. Teresa, Saint John of the Cross, Blessed John Ruysbroeck, Saint Bonaventure. The peak of the mystical life is a marriage of the soul with God, which gives the saints a miraculous power, a smooth and tireless energy in working for God and for souls, which bears fruit in the sanctity of thousands and changes the course of religious and even secular history. With this in mind, Saint Thomas could not fail to give the highest place to a vocation which, in his eyes, seemed destined to lead men to such a height of contemplation that the soul must overflow and communicate its secrets to the world. Unfortunately, St. Thomas's bare statement, the religious institutes which are ordered to the work of preaching and teaching hold the highest rank in religion, is frankly misleading. It conjures up nothing more than the mental image of some pious and industrious clerics bustling from library to classroom. If it meant no more than this, the solution would be hardly comprehensible to a Christian. Yet the tragedy is that many, including members of those mixed orders, cannot find in it any deeper significance. If you can give a halfway intelligent lecture applying some thoughts from scholastic philosophy to the social situation, that alone places you very near the summit of perfection. No, we keep our eyes on those flaming words which lay down the conditions under which it is valid to leave contemplation for action. First of all, propter abundantium divini amoris. The mixed life is to be rated above that of the pure contemplatives only on the supposition that their love is so much more vehement, so much more abundant, that it has to pour itself out in teaching and preaching. In other words, St. Thomas is here teaching us that the so-called mixed vocation can only be superior to the contemplative vocation if it is itself more contemplative. This conclusion is inescapable. It imposes a tremendous obligation. St. Thomas is really saying that the Dominicans, the Franciscans, the Carmelites must be super contemplatives. Either that or he is contradicting everything he said about the superiority of the contemplatives. Whether the mixed orders today in America are actually as contemplative as this program would demand is a question I have no intention of answering. But at any rate, it seems that most of them have reached in practice a sort of compromise to get out of the difficulty. They divide up their duties between their nuns and their priests. The nuns live in the cloisters and do the contemplating, and the priests live in the colleges and the cities and do the teaching and the preaching. In the light of and the doctrine of the mystical body, this solution is at least possible, if conditions leave them no other way out. St. Thomas, however, envisaged a program that is far more complete and satisfactory for the individual and for the Church. But what about the contemplative orders? Their rules and usages at least grant them all they need to dispose themselves for contemplation, and if their members do not reach it, It is not because of any difficulty inherent in their actual way of life, granting that they are or can be as contemplative as they were meant to be by their founders. Are they anything else? The fact is, there does not exist any such thing as a purely contemplative order of men, an order which does not have, somewhere in its constitution, the note of contemplata tradere, The Carthusians, with all their elaborate efforts to preserve the silence and the solitude of the hermit's life in their monasteries, definitely wrote into their original customs the characteristic labor of copying manuscripts and writing books in order that they might preach to the world by their pen, even though their tongues were silent. The Cistercians had no such legislation, and they even enacted statutes to limit the production of books and to forbid poetry altogether. Nevertheless, they produced a school of mystical theologians, which, as Dom Berlière says, represents the finest flower of Benedictine spirituality. I just quoted what St. Bernard, the head of that school, had to say on the subject. And in any case, even if the Cistercians never wrote anything to pass on the fruit of their contemplation to the church at large, contemplata tradere would always be an essential element in the Cistercian life to the extent that the abbot and those charged with the direction of souls would always be obliged to feed the rest of the monks with the good bread of mystical theology as it comes out in smoking hot loaves from the oven of contemplation. This was what St. Bernard told the learned cleric of York, Henry Murdoch, to lure him from his books into the woods where the breeches and elms taught the monks wisdom. And these purely active orders, what about them? Do any such things exist? The little sisters of the poor, the nursing sisterhoods, cannot truly fulfill their vocations unless there is something of that contemplata trodera, the sharing of the fruits of contemplation. Even the active vocation is sterile without an interior life and a deep interior life at that. The truth is, in any kind of a religious order, there is not only the possibility, but even in some sense the obligation of leading at least to some extent, the highest of all lives, contemplation, and the sharing of its fruit with others. St. Thomas's principle stands firm. The greatest perfection is contemplata tradera. But that does not oblige us to restrict this vocation as he does to the teaching orders. They only happen to be the ones that seem to be the best equipped to pass on the knowledge of God acquired by loving him. If they have acquired that knowledge in contemplation, Yet others may perhaps be better placed for acquiring it. In any case, there are many different ways of sharing the fruits of contemplation with others. You don't have to write books or make speeches. You don't have to have direct contact with souls in the confessional. Prayer can do the work wonderfully well, and indeed the fire of contemplation has a tendency to spread itself throughout the church and vivify all the members of Christ in secret without any conscious act on the part of the contemplative. But if you argue that St. Thomas's context limits us at least to some sort of visible and natural communication with our fellow men, though it is hard to see why this should be so, nevertheless, even in that event, there exists a far more powerful means of sharing the mystical and experiential knowledge of God. Look in St. Bonaventure's itinerarium and you will find one of the best descriptions ever written, of this highest of all vocations is a description which the seraphic doctor himself learned on retreat and in solitude on mount alvernia praying in the same lonely spot where the great founder of his order saint francis of assisi had had the wounds of christ burned into his hands and feet inside saint bonaventure saw by the light of a supernatural intuition the full meaning of this tremendous event in the history of the church there, he says, St. Francis passed over into God in deum transit, in the ecstasy, excessus, of contemplation. And thus he was set up as an example of perfect contemplation, just as he had previously been an example of perfection in the act of life, in order that God through him might draw all truly spiritual men to this kind of passing over, transitus, and ecstasy, Less by word than by example. Here is the clear and true meaning of contemplata tradere, expressed without equivocation by one who had lived that life to the full. It is the vocation to transforming union, to the height of the mystical life and of mystical experience, to the very transformation into Christ, that Christ living in us and directing all our actions might himself draw men to desire and seek the same exalted union because of the joy and sanctity and the supernatural vitality radiated by our example. Or rather, because of the secret influence of Christ living within us in complete possession of our souls. And notice the tremendously significant fact that St. Bonaventure makes no divisions and distinctions. Christ imprinted his own image upon St. Francis in order to draw not some men, not a few privileged monks, but all truly spiritual men, to the perfection of contemplation, which is nothing else but the perfection of love. Once they have reached these heights, they will draw others to them in their turn. So any man may be called, at least de jure, if not de facto, to become fused into one spirit with Christ in the furnace of contemplation, and then go forth and cast upon the earth that same fire which Christ wills to see enkindled. This means in practice that there is only one vocation. Whether you teach or live in the cloister or nurse the sick, whether you are in religion or out of it, married or single, no matter who you are or what you are, you are called to the summit of perfection. You are called to a deep interior life, perhaps even to mystical prayer, and to pass the fruits of your contemplation on to others. And if you cannot do so by words, then do so by example. Yet if this sublime fire of infused love burns in your soul, it will inevitably send forth throughout the church and the world an influence more tremendous than could be estimated by the radius reached by words or by example. St. John of the Cross writes, A very little of this pure love is more precious in the sight of God and of greater profit to the church, even though the soul appears to be doing nothing than are all other works put together. Before we were born, God knew us. He knew some of us would rebel against his love and his mercy and that others would love him from the moment that they could love anything and never change that love. He knew that there would be joy in heaven among the angels of his house for the conversion of some of us. And he knew that he would bring us all to live here to Gethsemane together one day for his own purpose, for the praise of his love. The life of each one in this abbey is part of a mystery. We all add up to something far beyond ourselves. We cannot yet realize what it is, but we know in the language of our theology that we are all members of the mystical Christ and that we all grow together in him for whom all things were created. In one sense, we are always traveling and traveling as if we did not know where we were going. In another sense, we have already arrived We cannot arrive at the perfect possession of God in this life, and that is why we are traveling and in darkness. But we already possess him by grace, and therefore in that sense we have arrived and are dwelling in the light. But oh, how far I have to go to find you in whom I have already arrived. For now, O my God, it is to you alone that I can talk, because nobody else will understand. I cannot bring any other man on this earth into the cloud where I dwell in your light. That is your darkness, where I am lost and abashed. I cannot explain to any other man the anguish which is your joy, nor the loss which is the possession of you, nor the distance from all things which is the arrival in you, nor the death which is the birth in you, because I do not know anything about it myself. And all I know is that I wish it were over. I wish it were begun." "'You have contradicted everything. "'You have left me in no man's land. "'You have got me walking up and down all day under those trees, "'saying to myself over and over again, "'Solitude, solitude. "'And you have turned around and thrown the whole world into my lap. "'You have told me, leave all things and follow me. "'And then you tied half of New York to my foot like a ball and chain.' You have me kneeling behind that pillar with my mind making a noise like a bank. Is that contemplation? Before I went to make my solemn vows last spring on the Feast of St. Joseph, in the 33rd year of my age, being a cleric in minor orders, before I went to make my solemn vows, this is what it looked like to me. It seemed to me you were almost asking me to give up all my aspirations for solitude and for a contemplative life, You are asking me for obedience to superiors who will, I am morally certain, either make me write or teach philosophy, or take charge of a dozen material responsibilities around the monastery. And I may even end up as a retreat master, preaching four sermons a day to the seculars who come to the house. And even if I have no special job at all, I will always be on the run from two in the morning to seven at night. Didn't I spend a year writing the life of Mother Breckman's? who was sent to a new Trappist foundation in Japan and who wanted to be a contemplative? And what happened to her? She had to be gatekeeper and guest mistress and sacristan and cellarer and mistress of the lay sisters all at the same time. And when they relieved her of one or two of those jobs, it was only in order to give her heavier ones like that of mistress of novices. Martha, Martha, solicita eris et terbaburis erga plurima. When I was beginning my retreat before solemn profession, I tried to ask myself for a moment if those vows had any condition attached to them. If I was called to be a contemplative, and they did not help me to be a contemplative but hindered me, then what? But before I could even begin to pray, I had to drop that kind of thinking. By the time I made my vows, I decided I was no longer sure what a contemplative was or what the contemplative vocation was or what my vocation was and what our Cistercian vocation was. In fact, I could not be sure I knew or understood much of anything, except that I believed you wanted me to take those particular vows in this particular house on that particular day for reasons best known to yourself, and that what I was expected to do after that was to follow along with the rest and do what I was told and things would begin to become clear. That morning, when I was lying on my face on the floor in the middle of the church, with Father Abbott praying over me, I began to laugh. With my mouth in the dust because without knowing how or why i had actually done the right thing and even an astounding thing but what was astounding was not my work but the work you worked in me the months have gone by and you have not lessened any of those desires but you have given me peace and i'm beginning to see what it's all about i'm beginning to understand because you have called me here not to wear a label by which i can recognize myself and place myself in some kind of a category, you do not want me to be thinking about what I am, but about what you are. Or rather, you do not even want me to be thinking about anything much, for you would raise me above the level of thought. And if I am always trying to figure out what I am, and where I am, and why I am, how will that work be done? I do not make a big drama of this business. I do not say, you have asked me for everything, and I have renounced it all, because I no longer desire to see anything that implies a distance between you and me. And if I stand back and consider myself and you as if something had passed between us, from me to you, I will inevitably see the gap between us and remember the distance between us. My God, it is that gap and that distance which kill me. That's the only reason why I desire solitude to be lost to all created things, to die to them and to the knowledge of them, for they remind me of my distance from you. They tell me something about you, that you are far from them, even though you are in them. You have made them, and your presence sustains your being, and they hide you from me, and I would live alone and out of them. O oh, Beata Salatudo. For I knew that it was only by leaving them that I could come to you and that is why I have been so unhappy when you seem to be condemning me to remain in them well now my sorrow is over and my joy is about to begin the joy that rejoices in the deepest sorrows for I'm beginning to understand you have taught me and have consoled me and I have begun again to hope and learn I hear you say to me I will be giving you what you desire. I will lead you into solitude. I will lead you by the way that you cannot possibly understand, because I want it to be the quickest way. Therefore, all things around you will be armed against you, to deny you, to hurt you, to give you pain, and therefore to reduce you to solitude. Because of their enmity, you will soon be left alone. They will cast you out and forsake you and reject you, and you will be alone. Everything that touches you shall burn you, and you shall draw your hand away in pain until you have withdrawn yourself from all things. Then you will be alone. Everything that can be desired will sear you and brand you with a cautery, and you will fly from it in pain and be alone. Every created joy will only come to you as pain, and you will die to all joy and be left alone. All the good things that other people love and desire and seek will come to you, but only as murderers to cut you off from the world and its occupations. You will be praised, and it will be like burning at the stake. You will be loved, and it will murder your heart and drive you into the desert. You will have gifts, and they will break you with their burden. You will have pleasures of prayer, and they will sicken you, and you will fly from them when you have been praised a little, loved a little, I will take away all your gifts and all your love and all your praise, and you will be utterly forgotten and abandoned, and you will be nothing, a dead thing, a rejection. And in that day you shall begin to possess the solitude you have so long desired, and your solitude will bear immense fruit in the souls of men you will never see on earth do not ask when it will be or where it will be or how it will be on a mountain or in a prison in a desert or a concentration camp or in a hospital or at gethsemane it does not matter so do not ask me because i'm not going to tell you you will not know until you are in it but you shall taste the true solitude of my anguish and my poverty I shall lead you into the high places of my joy, and you shall die in me and find all things in my mercy, which has created you for this end, and brought you from Prades to Bermuda, to St. Antoine, to Oakham, to London, to Cambridge, to Rome, to New York, to Columbia, to Corpus Christi, to St. Bonaventure the Cistercian Abbey of the poor men who labor in Gethsemane, that you may become the brother of God, and learn to know the Christ of the burnt men. Sit finis libri, non finis quarendi. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. We hope that you've enjoyed this Upila Audio presentation of The Seven Story Mountain by Father Thomas Merton. Performance copyright 2009-2010 by Uvila Audio. All rights reserved. The opening and closing themes were the traditional Irish tune, The Star of the County Down. The closing guitar was played by Luca Bays, who we thank for this contribution. Those of you who attend Christian services regularly will probably recognize the song as the Canticle of the Turning, whose lyrics were written by Rory Cooney. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvilaaudio at uvilaaudio.com and check out our MySpace website to contact fellow listeners, myspace.com slash uvilaaudio. We are listening on Podcast Alley, as many of you know. Please feel free to vote for the adult or kids' podcasts so that we can get more listeners. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.ovulaaudio.com. We are, of course, listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free there. If you like our podcasts, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the PayPal link. It is secure. Given the 60-plus hours of time to record, edit, and check the seven-story mountain, we do not feel that such requests or tips are beyond the pale. All the money collected will go toward maintaining the podcast in the future. Our next podcast will be back on both the adult and children's podcast streams in a couple of weeks. We will finally be going back to Doc Savage and presenting the Johnny Sunlight Saga. Sunlight was the only villain who ever escaped Doc and had a return visit. We will be presenting two Doc books consecutively, The Fortress of Solitude, and yes, Doc had one long before Superman did, and The Devil Genghis. Like you, we have all been looking forward to those presentations for a long time now. From all of us at Uvila Audio, we thank you.